Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He's back a second time on the podcast. Please welcome back Sivavish from Al Muktima YouTube channel. Last time we spoke about the origin of Islam. This time we're going to talk about the Third Crusade and the infamous Salah al-Din and his life and achievements. And what do you think is about Salah al-Din? But for, 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 before we go into him, I want to talk about your channel. Tell us what it is you do there and how, what kind of Islamic history you cover on al Muqtima? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be back. Um, on Al-Muqtima, I just cover Islamic history, basically everything, I guess, I can that I can think of. Um, not theology, but just um, just history. I, I like to think, I like to say that um, I make videos about the history of uh, people who thought of themselves as Muslims. Uh, so that's the type of uh, history that I'm covering. Recently, I, I completed my series on uh, the Mughal Sultanate of India. Um, and the, currently, I'm, I've sort of returned to the Abbasids and also making a, an assortment of videos uh, about different topics from the Islamic world. If I may add that both of us do have a little bit of cold right now, so do forgive us and be patient with us in this episode. I, so, but I think it's going to be a great episode nonetheless. So, so let's start about Saladin or Salahadin. Where, where, what kind of family did he come from? Because he did end up, his father, if I remember right, correctly, he was a general as well, right? Yeah. Uh, Salahadin's father, Ayub, um, was uh he was a general he he was a governor um of the city of Tikrit which by the way later became famous as the birthplace of Saddam Hussein um and then uh and at the time he built some relations with uh Zengi with Imaduddin Zengi uh, and that led to him being installed uh, around on as, as governor of some various cities in Lebanon, in around Damascus, but he he primarily settled in Damascus, um, where um, where Salahuddin grew up as a, as a young boy, uh, and uh, by the time that Salahuddin grew up, uh, Imaduddin Zengi had died. At the time, uh, the Middle East, the core of the Middle East, what we call the Greater uh, Syria, was under the command of various smaller dynasties out of which we had one Muslim one that stood out, the Zengi dynasty headed by Imaduddin Zengi. Um, and on the other side, we had the Crusaders who were ruling what we today call Israel and Palestine, uh, plus some parts of Lebanon all the way up to uh, to Aleppo, uh, not Aleppo, um, Antioch. Uh, so you had the, the coast of the Mediterranean was being controlled by the Christian Franks. 
Uh, and Zengi, at the time, by the by this point, uh, the Christians had been there for something like 50 years. Uh, so the Muslims had sort of become used to them. And rather than trying to fight them, rather than trying to drive them into the sea, um, Muslims had just found, just thought, of, they started thinking about ways that they could benefit from the situation, how they could ally with uh, the Christians against each other. Uh, so that's the world that Salahuddin was born in, and he was raised in Damascus. Uh, he was a, a Kurd, ethnically, he was a Kurd. Um, so, yeah. And this was the end, the Fatimid Caliphate were failing as well, right? But they still had somewhat power in the region. Yeah, uh, they had been failing for, uh, I would say, you know, by the time Salahuddin entered Cairo in 1169, um, they were, they had been failing for 69 years, you can say. <laughs> nice. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much since the, the first crusade, they had been failing. Um, and uh, at, at this point, by, by this time, uh, the Fatimid caliphs were controlled by different puppets uh, who were who served as viziers. And it said that the only way to get the job of the vizier uh, was to kill the previous vizier. Mm-hmm. So out of their last 17, I, I think 17 viziers, 15 were killed. Mm. Um, and then these last 17 include uh, Salahuddin as well because he served as the vizier early on um, but yeah 15 out of their last 17 viziers were killed uh, so you can imagine how unstable this state had become by this point mm. and um, you know it's it's rivalry was not primarily with uh, with the, the Christian Franks who had taken the holy land from them uh, but rather still they were focused on the Shia Sunni uh, aspect of the whole situation and, and they felt and they had lost I believe uh, at this time they lost uh, Sicily to the Normans as well so they were pretty much powerless in that region too right yeah they still you can yeah the, as as a state they still controlled Egypt hmm. um, but that was not the caliph that was pretty much his vizier they had uh, they actually still had the the skeleton of what could have been a good empire what could have been a stable entity uh but they just weren't able to execute it because even uh at the time like i'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here but even when salahuddin entered and he tried to take over he had considerable resistance from loyalist forces um, because people were still loyal to the the Shia Fatimid dynasty, and so so they were in terms of administration. I think that's where they failed. But in terms of military, they were okay. In terms of religious legitimacy, they were okay. But in terms of administration, is where they failed. Right. And, so, uh, sorry. Go uh, ahead. No, you. I'm uh, sorry. I thought it, my bad. You we were going. They just finished what they were talking about. Ah, and then uh, they developed a rivalry with the Zengids, um, which which is its own thing. We can talk about that in a minute when Salahuddin gets a little bit older. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, of course, I want to add this, that there there is this famous story, it's ludicrous, of course, but that Eleanor of Aquitaine was 
in I believe in the Second Crusade, she was in bit briefly in North Africa as well, and it's this ludicrous rumor that she slept with Saladin, but it's of course not true because it would have been eleven at the time. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I've never heard that rumor, but it's just there's no way that that could have happened. Right. And because so um, Eleanor, yeah, Eleanor was uh, a figure of the Second Crusade. Um, and yeah, by the time that Saladin became powerful, she must have been in her 60s. Mm. So uh, there's really no way of doing that. And at the, at the time, um yeah so i i have no idea i really don't think that that rumor could have been true and uh, yeah it, it definitely wasn't true yeah so of course let's begin with his childhood and because i believe he did campaign with his father if i remember correctly for briefly as well he primarily campaigned with his uh his uncle he oh, grew that's right in- uh, and he became um, uh, a ward of his uncle. His uncle served as his mentor. Uh, and his uncle, Shirko, Asaduddin Shirko, which, by the way, means the lion of the religion, the lion, the lion of the faith, the lion of the mountain. So that That's was a his... baddest name, if anything. <laughs> That's a, that was his full name. Uh, but he was kind of, a, kind of a hothead. He was a very good general, but he was also a hothead. Um, he, he was very quick to temper. He had a big ego. Um, actually, the reason that, um, that the, uh, the Ayyubid family, Salahuddin's father, uh, escaped from Mesopotamia was because, uh, according to legend, Shirko had killed uh, someone there and then the family just had to escape overnight pretty much and uh, it seems that that is the night that Salahuddin was born the night that they escaped so he was born in Mesopotamia but then they even at, the, at the very same time they just immediately uh, left uh, Iraq um, and Asaduddin Shirko found his way to the Zengid military and he became uh, very popular among their ranks he was hothead but for the for the Atabeg, which was the title that the Zengids used, he was worth the trouble. Um, so Salahuddin early on was we can imagine that he was he fought he was with his uncle on some campaigns, but the first campaign that we know of um, was, I believe, in eleven sixty three or eleven sixty four. I'm not sure, uh, but that was the first invasion of uh, the first Zengid invasion of Egypt uh, what had happened was that the the um, the vizier of the Fatimid Caliphate uh, Shawar ibn Mujir uh, had uh, he had some rivals in the capital uh, and he uh, was about to be ousted or killed um, so he went to the Zengids and asked them for help he said if you help me I will pay you uh, help me retain my my power. So the Zengids, um, they were afraid of that. They were afraid that if we don't help him, he will go to the Crusaders, and then the Crusaders will enter Egypt. And if the Crusaders take Egypt, um, then that is just then they will have a self sustaining empire, and they will be much more much more difficult to uproot and uh, drive to Europe. Uh, so at the time, the king of Jerusalem was Amalric. Uh, I believe he was the father of Baldwin IV. I'm not sure. Let me just do a quick search. Yeah, he was the father of Baldwin IV. 
um, the leper king. Uh, so Shavar, so to help Shavar, uh, Zengi, at the, by this point, Imaduddin Zengi had died and his son Nuruddin Zengi uh, was in power. Uh, Nuruddin sent an army under the command of Shirkoh into Egypt. Um, and so um, they entered Egypt, they took Cairo, they installed Shavar. Uh, but just just before they did that, Shavar became, he was afraid that uh, by doing this, he had given too much power to the Zengids. And then now he could become a puppet of the Zengids. Um, so he invited the Christians in a, in a very surprising twist. Uh, mm-hmm. He invited the Christians to help them, help him. Um, and so Amalric invaded and these two armies, they... Mm again you know chasing each other and there were a small skirmishes nothing not a, a very big battle but everybody was tired so they just decided to go home in 1164 and from 1164 to 1169 there were various campaigns various invasions i think um two by the zengids and three by the christians um but eventually yeah, in, the, in these campaigns, Salahuddin was with his uncle. Um, but in one of these campaigns, I believe it was the first one, actually, uh, Salahuddin was left to defend uh, Alexandria. Uh, how old would he have been at this time? How old would he have been? Um, in his 20s. I'm not... Uh, let me just uh, do a quick calculation. Yeah, he was like 25, 26. Hmm. So uh, he, like he was, his uncle saw something in him. He saw potential in the boy and uh, started to train him to become a general one day. Um, And he even began trusting him with command. Uh, At this point, this is the first campaign in which we know that Saladin had, had a decent role he um he was given the task of defending alexandria while his uncle went out uh during that campaign uh and but however he was uh, besieged by the christians and shavar and he put on a formidable defense um which you know led to him become something of a rising star within the Zengid army because he was young and still he was able to defend against such an overwhelming army uh, but the result of these invasions until 1169 for these five years, uh, the result of these invasions was always inconclusive. You know, there were small skirmishes, there was a siege or two, um, but no territory changed hands and uh, it was nothing significant. Everybody just always was just like, yeah, we're tired, let's go home. Um, so everybody tr- tried, to, tried to find a way to make peace at the time. Uh, but yeah, this is this is where we we see Salahuddin at first becoming uh, becoming a general. And if if I remember correctly, soon later on he will, will start begin he begin working for the Fatimids on their side, and they eventually, of course, turns against them. And he is the reason for the real their ever their fall eventually. But he does begin working for the Fatimids in the beginning. Yeah, so in 1169, um, Nuruddin Zengid sent an army to just resolve this conflict. And Shirko, like I said, Shirko was, uh, he was kind of egotistical 
And he was very angry at the fact that over five years he had not achieved. He had, he had invaded Egypt uh, twice already, already, and he hadn't been able to achieve anything. Um, so in 1169, they invaded Egypt. I'm sorry about the cold again. Uh, mm-hmm. So they invaded Egypt in 1169 and they took over Cairo. They This time they didn't come with Shavar, they didn't come with anybody in the court they just came as pretty much as invaders uh and their 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 defense was their their claim to legitimacy was that shavar had allied with the christians you know the so-called enemy of his enemies of islam and so um yeah so we have to fight him we have to oust him we have to bring back islam into egypt um and so they invaded Egypt. And the and the caliph, the Fatimid Caliph, he really had no power. And Shavar uh was gone and um uh, Amalric uh was either dead or dying. Um no Amalric was actually alive at the time. Uh so they were just able to take take Egypt and Cairo. Um and uh, and Shavar had made the mistake of burning parts of Cairo to make sure that um, that Salah, Salah that uh, Shirko would have a harder time taking it. Um, he had burned parts of Cairo, so you can imagine that Shavar had become very unpopular uh, in the city, and uh, parts of the city welcomed uh, the army as liberators, uh, but parts of the city did not like the fact that they were they were Sunnis uh, because you you know there were there was a significant Shia population, and even those who weren't Shias. Um, they, there was, there were ma- many structures of, um, of the Shia faith within Egypt, within Fatimid Egypt. So, um, the, that was everywhere. Um, and so in 1169, when Salahuddin and Shirko entered, the Caliph greeted them. And then eventually the Caliph installed Shirko as his vizier. So at this time, um, Technically, for those keeping track, Shirko had two masters. One was the Shia Caliph, and then the other was Nuruddin Zengi. Now, there was no one above the Shia Caliph. He was the authority, I mean, other than God, there was no one above the Shia Caliph. But Nuruddin was technically a servant, as he said himself, to the Sunni Caliph. So at this time, there was an indirect sort of a funnel of power. Um, and uh, so he was serving two people. Shirkoh, if he had lived long, it's possible he would have challenged Nuruddin Zengi. Based on their personalities, we can imagine that that would have, uh, that would have happened. That could have been possible. Uh, but Nuruddin, but uh, Shirkoh didn't live for long. He died within the same year, within uh, a few months. He uh, apparently suffered some sort of seizure while taking a bath. Uh, so he died in 1169. And at that point, they had to choose um, the, the caliph, the Fatimid caliph had to choose a new vizier. Um, and he chose, well, none, none other than Salahuddin himself. At this point, I forgot to mention, at this point, Salahuddin was actually known as Yusuf because Yusuf is his given name. Uh, so Salahuddin was a title. And we actually don't know when he took the title of Salahuddin. It was either when he became vizier mm-hmm. or either when he became sultan. So sometime around that. 
And uh, Salahuddin uh, at this point became vizier. The reason that he was chosen was because he was rather young and uh, he didn't seem to have much experience in, in warfare. <laughs> he was just, uh, bless you. Thank you. He was, he was just a, um, just a, you know, a subservient of his uncle. So everybody thought that he was just a child. Uh, well, he wasn't exactly a child, but, you know, everybody thought that he was, um, he was unexperienced uh, inexperienced and so there was uh yeah uh the caliph chose him uh at, at this point um it seems that the fatimid caliph was not an, an entirely a puppet because of the way that this whole thing turned out and uh, because over the next uh five years um as salahuddin was would, would dismantle the the shia state uh, we can imagine that the caliph was not exactly as weak as, you know, a puppet, the term puppet implies. Uh, but in any case, Salahuddin became a became vizier of the Fatimid caliph, um, and he became he began dismantling the Fatimid state. Now, we, we talked about how viziers were murdered almost all the time. Did, did Salahuddin fare fearful for his life at this point and was it confident that he would do well enough job that he would not be murdered like the other viziers he was uh he was confident at this point actually when he becomes vizier we see him almost change entirely as a person before and before this and after this his his reputation you know uh, is is that of a very very nice guy, a very you know calm, collected mind, a chivalrous man. Uh, but at this point, he was quite ruthless. You know, later on, he would forgive entire armies. He would let people walk. He would mm. he would go. He would you know uh, not conduct massacres where anybody else would have conducted a massacre. Um, so he was generally not a not a huge bad guy uh, later on but here he seems to be that way maybe because he had seen what had happened to previous viziers um, so he was careful he was ruthless he um, he began dismantling the Fatimid state like I said um, but at this time he he had many other elements that he had to had to bring together Shavar had escaped Cairo when the army had entered in 69 so he he was captured he was killed um and uh he and and the, the, there was this event known as the battle of the blacks that is that could have either been a revolt or could have been something incited by Saladin himself um we don't know on the shia sources we we hear that salahuddin that it was a pogrom that salahuddin had arranged for them to riot so he could kill them um but it's also possible that he didn't plan any of that um so there were around 50,000 African Nubian soldiers in the, the caliph's military. And that was a, that was a pretty decent, decent military. I have no idea. We, we read about these numbers. I don't know if they're, they're exaggerated or something, but 50,000 men, they, they should have made the caliph much stronger than he was. So maybe the numbers aren't all that accurate. It could have been around 20,000. Um, but whatever the case was, they... 
they began moving against the against Salahuddin. They resented Salahuddin for having brought his Syrian army, um, for having brought his Sunni army, um, and having become the the what what in Rome would have been called the dictator uh, of Egypt. So he he either incited them or they just went to it on their own, but they revolted. And then there was battle, there was fighting within the streets of Cairo uh, for a day or two. Um, and eventually the, the the Nubians were defeated and uh, they were sent, they were sort of dispersed and sent to various parts of the empire. Um, so yeah, at this point we start seeing him. He, there, there was also uh, another guy called Mu'tamin al-Khalifa who was the, the uh, the the sort of chief administrator of the empire, at least of the palace, uh, Salahuddin had assassinated him as well. Um, so that that had been actually the event that fired up the uh, the Battle of the Blacks, that led to the Battle of the Blacks. Uh, so we see we start seeing Salahuddin become ruthless within just two years in 1171. Uh, by this point, Salahuddin had uh, you know just within within just two years. He had he had brought down the the Shia pillars, so called pillars of the Egyptian society. Mm. He had uh, converted some of their their schools, some of their universities. He had founded new schools. Um, he had uh, replaced high ranking Shia officials with high ranking Sunni officials. Um, so at this point, we start seeing uh, seeing that. Um, in addition to that, in 1171, he replaced the name of the caliph in the khutbah in the friday sermon uh the 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 imam the person who led the prayer was supposed is supposed to give a sermon and in that sermon he acknowledges who the caliph is salahuddin had the name of al-adid the last fatimid caliph replaced with the name of the sunni caliph and thereby cementing the fact that Sunni rule was now upon Egypt, that the era of the Shia Caliphate was gone. Um, at, at this point, actually, Aladdin became sick and he died within a few days. Um, there's no indication that there was foul play. It was probably natural. He had been ill for a while. Um, and Salahuddin is reported to have said to his, his right-hand man, uh, that if he knew that the caliph was going to die, he wouldn't have crushed him like that by having his name replaced. And then the, the guy is, is supposed to have said to Salahuddin that if the caliph knew you would not replace his name, he wouldn't have died. Mm. So Salahuddin was feeling maybe guilty over the fact that he had done this. Um, but yeah, in 1171, he, he led the prayer of, uh, the funeral prayer of the caliph. He also didn't treat uh, the, the Fatimid heirs badly. There were many Fatimid princes and princesses still around. He didn't, didn't execute them as anybody else would have done. Um, but he separated them so that there wouldn't be you know much power with the Fatimids. And so Fatimids, we just stop hearing about them all of a sudden. We don't know what happened to those princes and princesses. Um, and from 1171 to 1174, um, he was, yeah, he was pretty much the Julius Caesar of Rome, uh, of Egypt. He was so alone, he was in control alone, and he was, 
he was building more and more power all that time. I wanted to go back a bit, a bit on when you said that he replaced the Shia with Sunni. So how how what was the Shia's reaction to re- being replaced with a Sunni Imam and Sunni prayers? Can we take a break? Yeah, sure. Just the five seconds. There you go. So as you would expect, the Sunni, the Shias didn't like the fact that they were being replaced by the Sunnis. Um, and for the population of Cairo, we don't exactly know if the majority was Shia or Sunni. Uh, they had been living under the Shia Caliph for 200 years. And this was something of a golden age for the Shias. Uh, so probably around 50% or so of the population was Shia. But they hadn't exactly been happy under uh, the Fatimids. You know, the, the people who were alive at this time, they had never been happy under the, the under the Fatimids because uh, for the past 70 years, the Fatimid Caliphate has had been in decline. So e- even if there was a reaction, which it seems that there would have been, um, but, you know, for example, when um, Saladin replaced the name of the Caliph, he had marched a couple of days earlier in the streets of Cairo with his army. Um, so, you know, in that way to remind his enemies that I have a military, I'm very powerful. Um, so if there was any revolt, any any potential rebellion brewing, um, by doing so, he had just, you know, that all of that disintegrated. So we didn't have a mass revolt other than the Battle of the Blacks. And Saladin was always, was careful enough to buy the right people, to intimidate the right people, and to uh, and to make sure that his his people, his enemies, remember uh, that he's powerful. So, like like I mentioned, that he had become ruthless at this point. He uh, he he was not the person that he was before or after uh, the whole ordeal. Mm. So let's talk about eleven seventy four, which is kind of the change turning point for Saladin when he enters Damascus. So let's. That, and that marks the true end of the Fatimid Caliphates. Um, the Fatimids had pretty much ended out in 1171. Hmm. Um, and at this point, Salahuddin was not, uh, he was not the, I guess, the sultan of the 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 Egyptian Empire. You know, he was not the head of anything. Hmm. At this point, he was still the vizier. He had not declared himself uh, a sultan or anything like that. Uh, he was still subservient to Nuruddin Zengi, and Nuruddin Zengi was starting to get skeptical about him now. Um, so he would send administ- send uh, administrators into uh, Egypt to make sure that you know uh, Saladin was actually paying a tribute, a tax to Nuruddin Zengi. So. Uh, between 1171 and 1174, uh, Nuruddin was quite skeptical. He would send people to check up on Egypt and to make sure that uh, there were no problems, to make sure that, that Salahuddin was still complying with the uh, with Nuruddin's orders. Uh, and Salahuddin was, to a large extent, he he never tried to overthrow him, and there's no intention, no indication that he would he would have wanted to. Um, eventually, it's possible that that would have happened because Egypt was very powerful, and Salahuddin, as a result, was very powerful, powerful enough to meet Nuruddin in battle as equals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Nuruddin died in 1174. 
Um, he he seems to have had an accident while he was playing polo. Uh, so he died in 1174. And at this point, the Syrian Empire, the Zengid Empire, went into a tailspin. Um, he was succeeded by his his young son. And I mean young. He was either 9 or 11 at the time. But this wasn't uncommon, though, generally in medieval age at this time, that such a young, young lad would become ruler of, of a kingdom and have a regent under his name or maybe. It wasn't. It was quite normal. Maybe not normal, but it was wasn't uncommon that it would happen. Yeah, but an an empire under a regent was never as powerful as it could have been under mm. someone who was of strong. Course. And Asali was not strong. Uh, the regent, his regent, who has a very very Turkish name that I keep forgetting, Ah Gamushtagin. Ah tried to hold on to power. Um, he in obviously in Asali's name, and at this point, Saladin invaded parts of Syria. His claim to power was that he wanted to unite this. He didn't have a pretension or anything. Uh, he believed that he wanted to unite, and he actually, from his actions, it seems that he didn't believe that that he wanted to unite Egypt and Syria to be able to drive out the Franks. So this was in his eyes or maybe just for legitimacy this was a very religious uh, war that he was on uh, on and for that he needed syria so um by this point he began uh, began attacking parts of the empire and uh, the zengid empire had itself sort of entered a, a succession crisis uh, because we had um, nuruddin's nephews in mosul and aleppo and some other places uh, they declared themselves independent, and so <coughs> bless Sorry, you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I feel like I'm getting worse. <laughs> now we all. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so in 1174. Um, so in 1174, basically the main uh, the main invasion, you know, began. Uh, Salahuddin entered, uh, he took parts of Syria, he took parts of Lebanon, uh, and, you know, started to really chip in at um, the Zengid Empire. And it was in the same year that he entered Damascus. Um, he made a deal with Asali, he pushed him into Aleppo, and uh, he himself took Damascus. And this is also where we see uh his his sort of claim to power the first thing he did when he entered damascus was go to the house that he grew up in his father's house um so this was sort of his his main idea that i'm taking this empire it belongs to me because i am i'm not like not a legitimate successor to nuruddin but nuruddin was a warrior for islam quote unquote and so, and I am one too. And so I am his spiritual successor. So that's the reason that he took over Syria. And it would, it would take him a bit of a, a bit of time before he actually, uh, before he actually took all of Syria. Uh, but by 1174, he was powerful enough uh, that he declared himself, himself Sultan of Egypt. And uh, it was probably at this time that he, 
began calling himself Salahuddin, which means uh, reform of the faith. So it's, it's a bit of a weird name if you think about it. But he would get, of course, powerful enemies as well after this, which is one of the most infamous group of them all, which is the Assassins, which was like mm-hmm. the real life Assassin's real era Assassin's Creed, if you will. And uh, so let's talk about the Assassins briefly before we move on to their assassination attempt of Saladin, because I feel like we have to talk a little bit about background information on them before we move on to Saladin's uh, the assassination attempt on him. Uh-huh. So around the time of the First Crusade, uh, the the assassins were founded by uh, Hassan Sabah, who uh, it, it was in a, it was a group of Ismaili Shia. Um, what's the proper word? Um, let's call them warriors, for the lack of a better word. I don't want to make a value judgment, so let's call them warriors. It was a group of. Um, Nazari Ismaili Shias, uh, Shia warriors who were under the command of Hassani Sabah, and um, they were they would carry out uh, all kinds of assassinations in broad daylight. It was you can say that it was something of a terrorist group because they were very much um, causing terror and panic throughout the Middle East. Uh, and by the time of uh, by the time of um, Salah, by, by Saladin's time, they had divided into two branches. Um, there was the Alamut branch in, uh, there was the Persian branch in Alamut, and there was the uh, Syrian branch in Masyaf. The Syrian branch was famously run by, at this point, uh, Rashid al-Din Sanan, known as the Old Man of the Mountain, uh, who was the um, the inspiration behind Al-Mu'allim in the first Assassin's Creed. Uh, so yeah, at, at this point, he was he was ruling. Um, he was the leader of the Assassins. Uh, in 1174, when Salahuddin laid siege to Aleppo to uh, fight Gamushtagin, the regent of the Zengid Empire, Gamushtagin... I believe seized... it's 1175, that's 1174 that he laid siege to Aleppo, actually. It's 1175 that he laid I think... siege? I think so, according to my notes, there's Saladin defeat an army from Aleppo to at Hama. Is that correct? Is that the one you refer to? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, okay, so that, that might have been yeah. uh, confusing. So, 1175, in in I think. Yeah, okay, 1175, so okay. So that's when um, the uh, when he attacked Aleppo, Gamushtagin put out a hit on Salah um, he hired the assassins to kill him, and the assassins made two attempts at Salahuddin. One in one of which, one of which he was injured. He he. Well, I wouldn't. I, I'm not sure if he was injured, but the uh, the assassin was able to uh, to hit him to at least scratch his armor uh, to throw him to the ground before the assassin was killed. So the, the assassins came to, came very, very close to killing Salahuddin. And Salahuddin was paranoid. He started sleeping in a tower because of that. Um, and uh, so when he got done with Aleppo, he didn't take Aleppo, but when he got done with it, he decided to face the assassins. Um, so he attacked the Masyaf castle, 
Um, but at the time, with the help of uh, Salahuddin's uncle, some sort of a deal was struck between the assassins and uh, Salahuddin, where the assassins uh, promised to let to leave him alone if he um, <coughs> if he just uh, just let them uh, let them be. And Salahuddin said, "Okay, yeah, no hits on me," and so that's that's fine. I think this was 1176, actually. Now that I'm thinking mm. about it. Uh, the Aleppo campaign was in 1175, yes. Right. Um, so uh, he struck a deal with the assassins uh, mm-hmm. at this point. And then he um, he returned to Cairo. His his mission, I guess, in, uh, in, in Syria was complete. And now he returned to Cairo as, as a sultan, as the, the ruler of pretty much of Syria, pretty much of all of Egypt. So he was a very powerful, powerful figure. Mm-hmm. And he was now sort of in in the the state to challenge the Christians, right? And let, let's talk about the, when they begin to challenge the Christians, because this, I believe, the Third Crusade is about to begin very soon. Yeah, that's in eleven eighty nine, um, and we're currently in. Um, Right, right. Seventies. I may have gotten a little, little um, ahead of myself here. So let's begin the one you thought about when he does challenge the Christians. So, um, at this point, Baldwin the Fourth, the leper king, was in charge of Jerusalem, and there were there were starting to. Skirmishes between the two were starting to become a regular thing. Uh, Salahuddin raided Jerusalem, parts of Jerusalem, and he actually lost. Uh, he actually had pretty much uh, up to this point the biggest defeat of his um, of, of his career in a battle called the the Battle of uh, Montgisard. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's it's called the Battle of Ramla in Muslim sources. So I'll just call it that. Um, this was in 1177. And uh, Saladin's pretty much entire army was destroyed at this point. And Saladin had, was routed and he uh, he went back. He began, began thinking about how he's going to do this. Uh, and he realized that he needed something on uh, within the, the Golan Heights. So at this point, there was this uh, this place known as Jacob's Ford, uh, which, by the way, is the place where Jacob became Israel. So, you know, the biblical story about Israel, um, uh, that's the place where that happened. And it's a, it's a very fascinating fort. Um, so Baldwin started to build a fort, fortress at Jacob's Ford because this was a place from where you could enter Jerusalem quite easily. Uh, you could enter what's called what's called Palestine. Then today, uh, I guess I guess it falls under East Bank, actually, not Israel. So um, at Jacob's Ford, Baldwin started to build uh, build a, a fortress to be able to defend against any possible invasion from Damascus onto Jerusalem, because this was Saladin's aim. The Saladin just wanted Jerusalem. He wanted to drive the uh, the crusaders out uh, so from damascus he could easily march an army down to jerusalem through jacob's ford uh, and as a result uh 
Baldwin started to build build a, a castle there. Salahuddin was worried about it, and so instead of um, instead of trying to fight, he actually made an offer. He said, "I'll buy it from you," uh, but the offer was too low. It seems that Baldwin was interested if the price was right, which is just weird. You know, you were building this fortress, and. Uh, uh, the, you, you're building this this fortress and uh, b- specifically to defend against Saladin, and now you're selling it to Saladin. That just seems crazy. Imagine how, uh, imagine how the workers must have felt building all this fortress and making it feel like it was for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Saladin decided to attack um, Jacob's Fort in 1179. Uh, at this point in 1179, he attacked uh, Jacob's Ford, but well, actually, he was able to take it. Sorry, I'm, I'm gonna keep confusing things in my head. So, in 1179, he was able to take uh, Jacob's Ford, and he conducted pretty much a massacre there. Yeah. Uh, the Ford was abandoned, and uh, when it was opened up by archaeo by archaeolo- by archaeologists. Um, what what is it like 800 years later uh they still found bodies of people mm. with arrows in them they found donkeys that were used in the in the castle so it was pretty much in the same the very same way that had that it had been after the battle so for 800 years it was not touched uh plus in 1204 or 6 uh, there was an earthquake in the area, a massive earthquake, not unlike the one that we recently had in Syria and Turkey. Uh, and it shifted half of the the fort um, north. So there's a huge gap between half of the fort. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's said to be a mind-blowing site um, that I really hope to visit someday. So this was sort of a, you know, a time capsule of that battle. And here we see Saladin conduct brutality. He killed everyone that he was that was captured. He uh, for the siege as well. He had during the siege he had tried to burn, uh, tried to set fire underneath the walls to get him to cave in. So these things because he was afraid of a, of an attack uh, by Baldwin. He was afraid that Baldwin might come to relieve the castle. So uh, this was uh, quite a bit uh, quite a bit brutal like that. So there were there were various. Uh, small skirmishes between uh, Baldwin and um, and Saladin at this point, uh, but then we also get a different character. We'll talk about him in a minute. Uh, but yeah, this was um, this was basically what was going on between Saladin and Baldwin, uh, and they sort of entered an uneasy alliance. Um, well, I wouldn't say, uh, sorry, I misspoke. Not an alliance, but a truce. They entered an uneasy truce. Um, but then then there was an, a third character who entered this situation who started to rile the whole thing up, and that was Raymond uh, of Châtillon. So let's talk, who, where did he come from, and how, how does he enter the picture in the world of Saladin? So... Um, he was he seems to have been an adventurer of some sort from france and he um seems to have come to, to come to the middle east during the second crusade and he married the lady of antioch uh, constance 
and uh, who, by the way, was um, uh, was the the daughter of Bohemond the Second. So Reynald was, uh, but during a raid, he was captured by Nuruddin Zengi. And uh, he was in prison for more than 10 years. Uh, but then when Salahuddin attacked Aleppo, Gamushtagin, he asked the Christians for help. And in that alliance, for you know this alliance, he let go many prisoners from you know, Nuruddin Zangi that Nuruddin Zangi had captured, he let go many prisoners from that. And one of those was Reynald, Reynald de Chatelion. Uh, and so it, in, in this way, I was thinking about the irony of the situation that Salahuddin was trying to take Aleppo and that led to the events uh, that led to Reynald being, uh, becoming free. Hmm. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of drama that was playing out in the, uh, in um in middle in the Middle East at the time, uh, in Syria at the time. Uh, but Reynald um seems to have hated Muslims, and you know it's sort of understandable. You know he was in prison for so many years, um, and it's possible he was tortured or whatever happened. Um, a lot of things probably happened. So he began attacking um Muslim, you know pilgrim caravans and not only that he actually he actually attacked mecca and medina he mm-hmm. he uh built ships small ships around um on the uh, sinai peninsula and he sailed all the way down to what is today the city of jeddah uh, and he you know entered Arabia and he actually he came very close to raiding Mecca and Medina and these were two cities that were so holy for Muslims but they were pretty much left undefended um, and it, it led to all kinds of legends within the, the Islamic world all kinds of stories why he did that but he did do that uh, although unfortunately that was well, unfortunately for him fortunately for the Muslims um, that wasn't successful Salahuddin found out and an army was dispatched and uh, the people were caught so are you okay? Yeah, yeah, no, Bruno Rose, yeah. Okay. So um so yeah, that was that was Reynald de Chatelion and um he he was always the voice of um so sort of the extreme voice in in the in the Jerusalem court. Um yeah. And then uh actually yeah, we can continue. Yeah, I uh, have yeah. We can't go through every, every detail, unfortunately. We have to move on as well. Um, the, this is not an audio book. This is a podcast, of course. But let's talk about the siege of Jerusalem. And that's kind of a key point, in, I would say, in Saladin's life. Because if I remember remember correctly, he does take through Jerusalem without bloodshed. And like, whereas the First Crusade, for example, they took Jerusalem... And they massacred basically even Christians at this point when they entered the crusade. But how long had the Christian had Jerusalem for this time at the point when Saladin comes and they siege to Jerusalem? It was something like 89 years. Uh, So what happened was that Baldwin IV, Baldwin the leper, uh, with whom uh, Salahuddin had had a truce, he died. 
Um, he died around in 1185, I think. Yeah, 1185, yes. And he was replaced by his nephew, Baldwin V. In the in the um, appointment or in the coronation, you know, ascension of Baldwin V, um, two people had played a very important role. First had been Guy de Lusignan, mm. who married Sibylla, Baldwin's mother, um, to sort of make her position stronger. And the second had been Reynald de Chatillon. So there was this alliance of uh, Reynald and Guy de Lusignan, um, between uh, between these two, there was a, an alliance. And then when Baldwin died in 1186, uh, Sibylla became um, became the queen, uh, but she immediately uh, abdicated in favor of her husband, uh, by thereby putting Guy de Lusignan on the throne of, of Jerusalem. Now, Guy was the king of Jerusalem, and his right-hand man was Reynald de Chatillon. This, this is the part that has been uh, so wonderfully captured in the, uh, the Kingdom of Heaven by, uh, what's his name, the, the guy who directed Gladiator. Oh, Ridley Scott, yeah. Ridley Scott, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and at this point, the, 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 the rivalry between the Egyptians, Saladin, and the uh, Jerusalem starts to fire up again. Um, and this all comes to a head in 1187 at the Battle of Hattin. Uh, the Battle of Hattin was quite complicated, uh, but the result was that the the, the crusader, the, the Frankish army, the Christian army was obliterated at the battle. And um, Saladin won, and Reynald and Guy were captured. Um, according to Arab tradition, um, if you offer a prisoner water, then that means that he can expect you to be nice to him, that he's not going to die. That's basically saying, I'm not going to kill you. So Saladin offers water to Guy, and Guy drinks a little, and then he hands it over to Reynald. And Saladin becomes enraged at the fact that this had happened. Now, it's possible that Guy didn't know the tradition. He just thought that he's giving us water. And, um, and because it was so hot and the heat had played a vital role in the destruction of the crusader of the Frankish army. At this point, Saladin gets angry and kills Reynald. And there was never going to be any pardon for Reynald uh, because of the things that he had done i mean of course he had tried to attack the holiest places in islam he had killed people he had uh, massacred entire caravans so there was no way that he was going to be forgiven uh, but saladin uh, took gi as prisoner and he allowed a lot of um, a lot of prisoners uh, to to leave to just go he didn't just walk away uh, from here and then later when he took Jerusalem. Um, and then in the same year, uh, Saladin became, uh, began marching on um, on Jerusalem itself. Sorry, give me, give me a minute. Oh, yeah, never. You confirm the years because I keep messing up years in my head. Uh And then, uh, what, what, what year are we at now? Uh, is it just a second? Uh, we are in 1188, right? 87? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 1187, the 2nd of October, 1187 is when uh, Jerusalem capitulated mm. uh, against Salahuddin. It was being defended by Balian of Ibelin. And there's a there's a story about him that um, that he had entered the city to take his wife. His wife was in the city and he said, I just want to enter to get my wife out. And Salahuddin being the nice guy that he was, he said, okay, that's fine. You can do that. Um, and, uh, so, uh, he, he, he let him enter. And then when he entered, he just said, okay, I'm going to defend the city now. Uh, he, he did a pretty good job, uh, but Salahuddin was able to take, take Jerusalem in 1187 and that triggered the third crusade. Mm. The news of that reached Europe remarkably quickly. And so immediately uh, everybody started to mobilize. Everybody started to get their men together in England. There was the the Saladin tax, uh, which was collected on things and pretty much every everything um, to be able to raise money against <coughs> uh, for the Third Crusade. There is a story that Richard Lionheart would say that he would sell London if he found the right buyer as well. <laughs> yeah. Which is ironic because he didn't spend that much time in England. Hmm. He didn't even speak English. English he, he, was, he was more or less a mama's boy, if, if you will, because he spent a lot of time, not with Henry II, his father, but with Eleanor of Aquitaine. She, she was, he was more or less with her and raised by her in, I believe it was Aquitaine. Yeah. And he, he just spent most of his time in France. He only spoke French. Which is so weird because you know he's considered to be this this big you know sh- chivalrous no not chivalrous but you know sort of the the the, the quintessential English knight mm. but he didn't even speak the local language he spent very little time in England mm. so in any case um, by this point Salahuddin had taken most of he, he started to expand his grip he took. Um, he took uh, Ascalon, he took some other, but he had taken Ascalon before actually. Uh, but yeah, he started to expand to complete his mission of pushing the crusade, the, the, the Christians, I keep saying crusaders, I mean Christians, uh, the Christians out of the Holy Land once and for all. Um, and the last place in that was Tyre. Tyre was the last city uh, on the coast of Lebanon that uh, that he had to take. But unfortunately, Tyre was being defended by the very men that Saladin had allowed to walk out of both Jerusalem and Hatim. You know, he had um he had um he had allowed a lot of prisoners from Hatim to go, you know, be free. He had um allowed a lot of people from Jerusalem to walk away. And so Tyre was now being defended by them. And there was a lot of criticism against Saladin by his own army that he had in- effectively arranged for the defense of Tyre himself by providing all these um, all these soldiers. Um, and uh, at this point, um, Tyre was being defended uh, by Conrad I, Conrad of Montferrat. Um, Montferrat, I think it's pronounced. I don't know how to pronounce these French names. So the other one who doesn't speak French. No, I don't. I would never speak French. <laughs> I, I, but I, I don't know if you want ahead of this, but there is something 
if this is after this the siege of Tyre or not, but uh, there is something I want to mention as well, which is perhaps one of the most br- brutal parts of the Third Crusade, which is the massacre at Acre. So I, w- I would like to talk a little bit about the massacre of Acre, because I think it's one of the most ruthless things that Richard Lionheart did during the Third Crusade. Um, yeah, in, in 1191, I think, yeah, yeah. in 1191, 1191, yeah. um, 91 was when Jerusalem, <coughs> Jerusalem, when, when Acre fell, and, um, at this point, the, the Christians, the Crusaders, they had a huge number of prisoners from the Ayyubid army, um, Salahuddin had just lost uh, a vital battle to them. Uh, and uh, so there was this demand. There was a series of demands by uh, uh, by Richard Lionheart against Saladin. Um, one of which was uh, the True Cross. That we want the True Cross, which Saladin had taken uh, by uh, had Saladin had taken um, during Hatim. Uh, along with there, that, there is there something was... there is something I would like to add to the to, to cross if I may interrupt you for a second. We talked about this. I believe it was in our episode about Jesus Christ, where we said that uh, there, if we had put every true cross, because the quite a lot of the true cross were given to Crusader kings on the return to Europe. Among them, fun fact: Sigurd of Norway got part of the true cross, and in recent years they did a DNA test on this. And spoiler alert, it was not the true cross. But you know, if they took it would be miles high in the sky if every single one had got one piece of the true cross pieced them together, it was it is said that it would the true cross would be sky high <laughs> if everyone had got a bit of the cross pieced them, you know, together. So so you know, of course, it was just legend. They did. I don't know if they actually believed it was the true cross back then, but you know, that's that's what they said that if everyone it would 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 be huge, more or less. Yeah, the true cross is actually very interesting because uh, uh, it was captured um, by Jerusalem uh, by Sal- Saladin, and I'm not even sure if that was the uh, that was even like just you know Christians just had that appear out of thin air or something um but then it was um saladin captured it and then the christians couldn't take it so it was either saladin or his son who sent it to baghdad to the caliph uh and then during the i believe fifth crusade uh the christians asked for the crew for the true cross as as a as a part of the negotiations and the muslims agreed uh but then they asked the caliph to bring it in in 1207 i think um, they asked for the true cross back and the caliph said, I have, I have no idea where it is. So it just disappeared uh, out of Baghdad. So we have no idea where it is. And there could be an, an Indiana Jones movie or something about that. I think that would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, but yeah, let's go back to the massacre of Acre and the massacre of the Muslim. So we did derail a little bit there, but I want to finish the massacre of Acre because it is an important event, I think, in Tertrusen and Saladin's life. It must have been because it just sounds so traumatizing. Yeah, um, it was it was unnecessarily brutal. 
on Richard's Richard's part. I think Saladin didn't do anything unnecessarily brutal in the whole in his whole life, um, other than the Battle of the Blacks. But but um, and then this is used as an example often to contrast Richard and, and Saladin, and, and in general Christians and Muslims. You know, uh, I don't agree with this simplistic narrative of Christians being the the bad guys or the evil guys here, Muslims being the good guys, but um, this is often used as an example. One could so, say they were the victims. Of this particular massacre? In general, like, uh, one could say they were the victims of crusades. Well, yeah, but, you know, the, the whole thing was started by Muslims as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. But yeah, of course, you know, if in the movie, the Ridley Scott movie, there's a dialogue about that um, uh, Bailey Nafibelin says uh, that we are here, they're here answering, uh, they're here uh, for the revenge of an offense that we did not give, uh, but now we have to pay for it. Because, you know, 89 years earlier, they had conducted a massacre. Christians had conducted a massacre. No defenders of Jerusalem in the, the, the Third Crusade were actually part of the massacre, but they had to pay for it now because, you know, they were Christians. So, um, so yeah, the, uh, the massacre at, uh, at Acre uh, was around 2,700 men, uh, prisoners. Uh, so they had been captured in a battle earlier uh, in one of Richard's, probably Richard's biggest, uh, sorry, Saladin's biggest defeat. Um, so they asked, uh, so Richard asked for the true cross. He asked for 100,000 gold coins and some other things, including prisoners, I think. Um, and for Saladin, giving the true cross was kind of a bad thing, plus all that money. So it was it was not really a win-win situation for him. Um, there was a deadline. A deadline was set for the exchange, but Saladin failed to meet it. And to pressure him, Richard decided to start. Like the um, the army, the uh, Muslim army could actually see uh, this whole thing. Um, and so he decided to have his men um, uh, taken to a small hill. Uh, all these 2,700 Muslims, he, he decided to have them taken to a small hill, which could be seen by Saladin's army. Um, and so they decided to slowly start to behead all 2,700 men, mm. uh, these prisoners. This was not something that Saladin would ever do. This was not something that um, that had, you know, would have done been done before, but Richard decided to do that. And it was really, really, I think, brutal. It must be one of the biggest atrocities committed in the Crusades in general, I think. In the third one, yes. <laughs> and, I mean... <laughs> In the third one, yeah, it could could be said that um, that yeah, it was the biggest one, and uh, there was a lot of uh, blowback from it. The Crusaders, a lot of Crusaders themselves, didn't like the fact that this had been done. Um, Richard's uh, even on even Saladin's army was not well. Of course, they were enraged, uh, but um, parts of Saladin's army blamed Saladin for this that you had allowed this to happen by being so nice to everybody. Uh, and yeah, because, you know, Tyre, like I mentioned, the Tyre was defended um, by men that Saladin had allowed to, you know, had given freedom to. Um, so in, in some ways, this was starting to blow back on Saladin as well. Something something that we haven't mentioned so far, um, <coughs> we talked about this briefly offline, is that 
I wouldn't, for the lack of better words, there was sort of a mutual res- not the lack of better words, but there was a mutual respect between Saladin and Richard I. That they were, I wouldn't say necessarily pen pals, more or less, if that's that's the word for it. But they did change letters, and there did seem to be a mutual respect between them. And they, there was even talk about perhaps in the next crusade we meet or some, if I remember correctly, that there they would. Of course, it never happened, but both of them would die before that happened. But there, there was a mutual respect between them, um, almost a long-distance romance, one would say. <laughs> uh, sorry, to add to the uh, last one, I don't want yeah. to be biased, uh, but Saladin, in retaliation, also killed something like 1,500 uh, Christian prisoners that he had. So, um, so yeah, Saladin wasn't exactly as nice either, uh, but you know, we have these things. Um, so yeah, about the bromance, um, I, I think it's blown out of proportion oftentimes um, because they had mutual respect. They did have respect for each other um, because as awful of a person, husband and king as Richard was, mm. he was a great soldier. And Saladin was a great soldier. So they had a respect for each other. They respected the fact that the other one was was uh, not only a good soldier, but also uh, he was um, he was, you know, chivalrous and all these. And Christians in general um, respected Saladin because of his his famous um, acts of, you know, nice things. Uh, so yeah, there was some stuff that uh, Richard wanted to meet Saladin, but Saladin said that kings only meet each other when the negotiations are done. So I'm not going to meet you for the negotiations, but once they're done, I will meet you. Um, and so he sent his brother Al Adil to uh, to go to uh, to Richard and negotiate. And the Christians actually became quite uh, quite. You know, they, they became quite taken with Al Adil, and there was even a proposal of a marriage between um, Richard's sister and Al Adil. Which, if had if it had had happened, it would have been, it wouldn't have been that unusual, but it would have mm. been quite a big thing, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, they, there was even a, a ceasefire when Richard's sister was getting married, and. According to some stories, Saladin actually was invited and he went there. Uh, but um, but those stories I've read in Islamic sources, so I'm not really sure if they're true. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of respect between the two. I wouldn't say that they were pen pals or anything. Uh, they wrote to each other and they respected each other. They had uh, mutual admiration for each other. Um, but yeah, when it came to you know came to these things, there was no there were no friends or anything. Hmm. So, of course, one of the last major events is that, of course, Aladdin takes Jaffa, and then Richard Lionheart take take it back even after afterwards, and that's kind of kind of the end of Aladdin Saladin's of the, of the Third Crusade, and I, I would say Saladin's career more or less. You should say that because uh, Saladin died soon after. So, um, wait, sorry. Um, you're talking about the siege of Acre, right? Yeah. Actually, it's the siege. It says here the siege of Jaffa. I don't know if you said that's right, but uh, yeah, Tarkafa. Okay, yeah. Siege of Kaffa, Yes. 
So, um, Siege of Kaffa was pretty much the, um, it, um, ended the Third Crusade. Yeah. So give me a minute, just, uh, no worries. Sorry for the outer silence a little bit, but yeah, we're gonna try to find the. We can we can just you know go briefly through this and just skip to its death eventually. Yeah, and yeah. For Saladin, we have uh, remarkable accounts from some of the people at his court, uh, so we know a lot of times we know what he was even thinking. Hmm. Let's, let's talk about the end of Saladin's life because it does establish, though it doesn't last long, the Ayyubids. I think it's they were right. The, the Ayyubid dynasty, though it wouldn't last very long, but you know he does. He doesn't die a rich man. He does die broke essentially, and yeah. he does most of the money. Earn is spends on the crusade, and he he do, uh, spends them. He do, he doesn't have much left. Oh, nothing left. He's a broke man when he dies. Yeah. Um. So, in ninety one, eleven ninety one, um, Saladin had the biggest defeat of his career. Um. It was. It's called the Battle of Arsuf. And actually, like after he took Jerusalem, Saladin's career had began to decline. So if someone asks when the, the, the Ayyubid Empire in itself hits peak, even though it remains technically till 1160, 1260, uh, so 70 years after that, uh, it hit its peak when it took Jerusalem. After that, Saladin was not able to do much. He was not able to take any major, to uh, have any major victories and his successors and so on and so forth. Um, not much, um, not much happened in that, uh, in that regard. So. <clears throat> yeah. By, uh, by uh, in 1192, in 1191, you know, we have the siege of, um, we had the Battle of Arsuf, we had the massacre at um, the massacre of Acre, um, but um, by in 1192, uh, Richard had become tired of this campaign and he was afraid of his position back home because his brother John was eyeing the throne. So um, that was also, uh, for, for Richard, that was also uh, part of the problem um, uh, that was, you know, hmm. and it so, doesn't. And he does end up being captured by the French, of course, on his way, or is it the Swiss? I think the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, yeah, Emperor. yeah. Uh, it was it was him. Yeah, he had actually during the Crusade, he had been very. He had been a kind of a jerk to the Holy Roman Emperor. I think at the time he was not a Holy Roman Emperor, but they, they took a fort together and uh, Richard had thrown away his flag in a very disrespectful manner. Mm. So that, that came to bite him in the ass later on. Yeah. So, of course, like we said, Saladin does die, a poor poor man, and he, of course, died. How, how, how long did he live, Saladin, when he passed away eventually in 1191? 
Um, Saladin pretty much he retired um, after after the the Treaty of Yaffa. Uh, so he took Yaffa in 1192, and uh, then there was a there was a, the treaty, and the Third Crusade was wrapped up. Um, that was late summer or early autumn of of um, actually let me just confirm the date i keep forgetting the dates hmm. so yafa was taken um in august of uh in august of 1192 yeah uh, and so saladin died in march actually recently i made a post about him on my social media on the 4th of march um, so Saladin immediately retired to Damascus and he fell ill. Um, he fell ill in the winter and, uh, yeah, he, he, he was ill only for a few weeks, maybe three weeks, I think. Um, and, and then he died and, and before he died, his son, Al-Afdal had, uh, begun, uh, trying to, you know, secure oaths from everyone. He even wrote to the Caliph to, uh, appoint him as to you know give him official legitimacy um so yeah but when saladin died he didn't have uh, they say that he didn't have enough money to even buy a coffin uh so he had just given everything that he had and yeah his death uh, was uh, from chroniclers at the time uh, they say that since the passing of the the first caliphs the first four caliphs you know the beloved ones um, the the world of Islam had never seen such a sorrowful occasion uh, as as Saladin's death. Uh, so he was very beloved and in his time, uh, but like many great kings, I don't think that he was able to. He was as great as as people like to say that he was, and maybe he himself didn't see himself as uh, as that great of a man. Um, he was buried in Damascus, and there's actually a very interesting story that links all that to the German empire. Right. And yeah. Arabia. Um, so um, when the king, uh, when the, the last emperor of Germany, Wilhelm uh, II, Wilhelm II visited the Middle East, he went to Saladin's tomb and he, um, he paid for its renovations and he made uh, a golden wreath to be put there, um, which is now in in a museum in London. I'm not sure which one it is. Because of course it is London. Yeah, of course it is in London. Uh, it was in, it was there. He installed it. It has German on it as well. It's it's quite a quite a European thing. Uh, so it was sitting at, at Jerusalem at uh, Saladin's um, tomb until the the Arab revolt during the First World War when. Um, when uh, Lawrence of Arabia and the um, the United Arab Alliance attacked Damascus and took it. At this point, um, Lawrence took it. He stole the wreath and he took it to London because, as he said, Saladin was no longer using it. So now it's sitting there in London. So it's a very interesting. I think it shows also the reputation of Saladin that after all this time, uh, Saladin was so remembered in the Islamic world and in the Christian one as well. And I think the Christian one remembered him more than the Muslim one did because we don't see him being loved in the same way. Like today, he has come back because of the of the Israel-Palestine thing. Uh, but whenever there has been a threat of 
Europeans for the Muslims, you know, during the colonial era, um, Saladin was revived. But before this, Saladin was pretty much forgotten. Mm-hmm. Well, not forgotten, but he wasn't as as important or as revered as he is. Uh, he was during the colonial era and as he is today. Mm. And they featured in several medias, like you mentioned the movie with Ridley Scott, of course, and he's in a, in a Swedish movie about Arn, the crusader, Swedish crusader, and uh, of course in, yeah, he's featured in posters as John Mann writes about in the end. He's, he's you know, in pro- I believe in protests he's been used as well, if I, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So he's he is a formidable figure today. Yeah, his his reputation, so to speak, is starting to build up. Yeah, he's relevant today because of the colonial era. Mm. You know, people, a lot of people saw the colonial era as as just another crusade. Uh, for for the Muslims, there was a, a huge religious aspect to the crusade, the colonial era. Not so much for the Europeans, but uh, to the Muslims, there was still that thing that Muslims believed. That, oh, this is just another one of uh, another crusade. This is just Europeans attacking us again. Um, and uh, so Saladin began to be revived as as this great Islamic hero. Mm. And of course, I think we're going to round it up there. Thank you so much for coming back. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I hope you enjoyed it despite both of us having a little cold. It's that, because it's that kind of season, of course. And do forgive us. I hope you enjoyed the episode regardless. Before you go, of course, do you have any social media you want me to put down below? And where, of course, your YouTube channel that you want to promote, may want to promote, I assume, that people can find you. Yeah, just uh, my YouTube channel at uh, Al-Muqaddimah. Hmm. I will, of course, put a link to that in the description. This has been World at Age 12. My name is Alan. This is, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts this day. If you are on iTunes, please write a little review if you like this episode. And you should, of course, check out some other episodes. Among them, our episode, I believe, late 50 episode 50-something, where we cover the origins of Islam, and check out some other episodes as well. You're going to definitely find something you like. My name is Alan. This has been well, that H12. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.